Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. If you missed today's show, we uh, talked about pipelines and a question uh, posed to the prime minister that seemed pretty straightforward that he kind of flubbed. We had a great conversation with Charles Adler about uh, Trudeau's response. And we also talked to local chef at uh, Rouge and Bistro Rouge, Chef Paul Rogalski, about the, the high-pressure environment that top chefs work in and what might have caused one of the world's finest chefs, Mr. Benoit Viollier, to take his own life. You can listen to Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770, Monday to Friday from 9.30 to 12.30. This uh, Trudeau news conference, by the way, is going to happen at 2 o'clock this afternoon. Not in the morning. That I need to clarify that. <laughs> be neat. He's gonna. He's in Calgary today. He's gonna meet with, um, I guess, oil industry people yep. today. We understand. Or as they call them out east, those fat cats in Alberta. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't want to seem like it's, you know, we're going to criticize him no matter what, because I'm sure if Trudeau didn't come to Alberta or didn't meet with industry, people would be saying, well, why aren't you coming to Alberta? Why aren't you meeting with these people? So, look, he came. He is. He seems to be listening. And we'll see. At the end of the day, I mean, we, we judge him on what he does or doesn't do, not necessarily a stupid answer he gives at a news conference. If he really believes that, uh, hey, you know what, I just I got to play this carefully, but if we strengthen the review process, if uh, I proceed delicately, I can navigate this through. I can make this pipeline happen. And then in four years, you'll all pat me on the back for doing so. And, and you'll pat your buddy Rachel on, on the back for doing so, too. We'll see. They claim to support these pipelines or support the idea of uh, exports and getting a product to Tidewater. They say that our approach will work better than what we had for the last uh, five or ten years. So. We'll see. They're they're selling us the notion of uh, results, and we'll see if they they deliver on those. All right. We don't need to keep this guy on hold any longer. Charles, welcome back to the program. Rob, uh, we'll see. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Charles Adler, of course, uh, now on uh, Sirius uh, XM Radio talking, uh, talking to the country, and this has become quite an issue nationally, hasn't it? It's a national issue, but here's the problem. It is not covered as, as a national issue. Uh, do you mind if I share, uh, and I, I know that uh, Rick Bell won't mind because he asked uh, the question that uh, the entire country needed to hear and the answer that Trudeau offered that the entire country needed to hear, that everybody at News Talk 770, everybody who listens to it did hear. Uh, do you mind if I just share the, the direct message I sent oh, uh, to Rick Bell? Fire away. Okay, and I sent him this early this morning because uh, I didn't want to have my mind made up for me by any kind of prediction, ideology, philosophy, my attitude, my feelings, my emotions, all those wonderful things. I just wanted the facts. And so I wanted to scan various websites this morning to see whether or not uh, the non-answer that Trudeau gave to the all-important question, if the NEB greenlights this, Will you greenlight it? And we all know what answer he gave. It was a, a non-answer. So 
I was wondering, of course, whether national media would cover that question and non-answer as the national story it deserves to be, and, and of course they did not. So I direct messaged Rick Bell early this morning and said, Rick, if anyone ever again needs an example of Eastern Central media bias, it is the story that you are the father of. What happened yesterday ought to be front and center of every national newscast in the country. It didn't happen in Montreal, Toronto, or Ottawa. That's why it isn't front and center in national stories. And I say this as someone who is from Montreal and worked in Toronto for many years, but it still ticks me off. You are at ground zero of the most important national story in the country. The Prime Minister could not have delivered a worse response, one that goes to the heart of his leadership. And it's, as they say in talk radio now, time for me to say to you, thank you for taking my call. But most of all, <laughs> thank you, Rick, for getting it out there, getting it right again and again and again. And right now, just as a citizen, never mind how much I think of Newstalk 770 as a family, but just as a Canadian citizen, I want to thank Newstalk 770 for running the question and running the answer. Everybody in the country needs to hear it. Yeah, you know, and the crazy thing about the question, uh, uh, Charles, is that, you know, Rick prefaces that question with, look, this is a simple question. And the question is simple, and it's not even Calgary-based. I mean, consider the fact that if a Calgary-based company wants to do a national project, they have to beg permission from this board that's structured out of Ottawa. So so Rick's basically taken the question all the way to Ottawa and said, hey, if the boys out east say it's okay, will the other boys out east say it's okay? And he doesn't even have a coherent response. Every every company, whether they're based in Montreal or, or Calgary, uh, has to go through regulatory authorities. Everything in this country is regulated as it needs to be because what's most important is safety and the public. We, we got that. There's no ideological argument there. Who on earth could possibly believe that Quebec-based Bombardier, if they had a similar situation to what we're talking about right now, and they too have all kinds of regulations uh, that they've got to meet. Who would believe that in a similar situation, Justin Trudeau in Montreal would give the kind of answer that he gave yesterday in Alberta if this was about Bombardier as opposed to what it is right now? Mm. It'd be kind of funny, too, if, uh, if for some reason we in Alberta just said, you know what, block the Rona thing. We don't want that sale to go through, <laughs> just for whatever reason, just to be jerks. <laughs> well, you know, Pierre Trudeau's son talks about uh, not cheerleading. This isn't a football game. This isn't the Calgary Stampeders versus the Montreal Alouettes, and you're not going to be a, a cheerleader for Montreal Alouettes. I got that. This is, this is not a football game. It's a national issue. It's no different than building the railroads east to west. You don't have an economy. You don't have a Canada without one. Pipelines east to west. You don't have a country without one. So it's not about being a cheerleader. It's about being a leader, a national leader, not just someone who is exactly what you criticized the previous guy for. He criticized the previous guy for only caring about his western base. And it's clear as a bell, it's clear as a Rick Bell, <laughs> that yesterday all Justin Trudeau was caring about was his Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa base. Well, and uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's fair to point out that there's a lot of opposition to this and other pipelines in that base. And so what remains to be seen is whether Justin Trudeau thinks he can win over that base or whether he's going to cave and, and pander to them. That, that's the big question. But, I, he I personally... told, but he has told that base 
that it's up to the National Energy Board, nonpartisan, right, scientific, exactly. fact-based, and everybody will give a chance, will get the opportunity to go to the National Energy Board with their grievances. And that once the National Energy Board makes the decision, because they're the umpire, he will respect the umpire. That's what he said, except mm-hmm. he changed that yesterday. That's what he should have said, uh, because I agree. I don't think he needs to be a cheerleader for this project or for this company. And that's fair for him to say, look, the, the NEB is going to review this project and, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go by what they find because I'm the one who's decided I'm going to change the, the criteria they're using. But what he needs to say is, I think the idea of a pipeline from Alberta to the East Coast to feed refineries in Quebec and New Brunswick and to be able to export a product, I think that in principle is a great idea and we'll see if this project uh, is is all that it needs to be. I, I think he could easily say that. Look, uh, we're losing $50 million a day. Uh, the country is. Okay? Um, this just isn't a really good time uh, to play parochial Quebec politics with this. So let, let's call it what it is. I mean, this is what he's always worried about. He's worried about the NDP getting to the left of him on an environmental issue. And that's all this is about. It's not national leadership. It, it's not even close. And if, if people in the rest of the country don't understand what it is to lose $50 million a day, all they have to do is look at the fact that we've got all kinds of issues in this country, including diseases that need cure and treatment. Do you mind if I get, just get personal for a moment here? Because I think this relates to everyone. It's not about me, but it's an issue that everybody has. Do you mind if I just do that? Have at her, yeah, please. Okay. Uh, the most traumatic event of my life uh, was having to bury my dad. But when I think about this issue and when I think about my country, I think about the fact that I don't want people to have to bury their dads and their moms and their aunts and their nieces and their nephews and their brothers and their sisters because of Alzheimer's, okay? Because with, with Alzheimer's, I, just as many other people in this country, saw the best part of my dad die 10 years before I buried him. So I want as many Canadians as possible to be involved at the highest levels of research and development, all this resourcefulness that the Prime Minister talks about. I want them to be resourceful about solving Alzheimer's and treating it, solving cancer and treating it, and all of these other things that apply to everybody, whether they're living in New Brunswick or Quebec or Ontario or Alberta or British Columbia. But here's the problem. You can't do any of that without capital. That's why I'm a capitalist. I'm not a capitalist because I work for Goldman Sachs. I'm a capitalist because I want moms and dads who are dealing with all of these important issues to have the best possible care. And without capital, you don't have it. So burning $50 million, leaving $50 million on the table every single day in this country because of Quebec politics is not only an insult, but is an injurious political throttle around the necks of people in this country, and it doesn't matter where they live. Now, I know that some people get really angry when I use that kind of rhetoric, when I connect a political issue to real life. But if we can't do that on News Talk 770 and on radio and TV stations across the country, if we can't connect the political issue to the real lives of Canadians, what the hell are we doing? Why is it such an incredible disconnect? 
I mean, I see the issue in Quebec, Charles, and everything that you've just laid out there is 100% true, but it's it's almost like it's too far a stretch for people to see. And I mean, I've even simplified it to the point of saying, look, don't say no to the pipeline in, in BC because you want all the things that that pipeline is going to give you. You want the roads, you want the schools, you want the hospitals, you want the long, long-term care spaces. Those are the product of the capital that that project creates. So why is it then that that and particularly in Quebec, they look at the pipeline issue, they stare down the pipeline issue, and not only do they not see the correlation between the capital investment and and the returns that it creates in terms of social welfare in their own province, but they also can't see the oil tanker coming in behind them to fill up the uh, the refineries that are on their shore. And the reason for all of that, in my opinion, is because they don't see the towers in Montreal going dark. They don't see that connection, and, and sometimes people don't understand they've got a problem until it really bites them in the arse. So, yeah, you've got, you've got oil field workers laid off and, and people who, who truck the oil and all the rest of it. But you have all of these uh, doctors who aren't going to have jobs. You've got all of these lawyers who aren't going to have jobs. You've got all of these engineers. You've got all of these other people. I mean, I don't have to give you the math because you do the math every day in terms of what every single job in the oil patch, every specific job that gets destroyed, how many other jobs get destroyed, all of those collateral damages that happen. Quebec, unfortunately, for the purpose of this discussion, I don't want anyone to be affected or damaged, but Quebec hasn't yet felt the damage. But the point is, the only reason Quebec has the standard of living that it has is because of those equalization payments. Well, down the road, we know those equalization payments are going to be coming down to a trickle. And so at that point, I guess the lights will go out in some of those towers and the lights will go on in people's minds that they have been hoodwinked by their own prime minister. But my question is, as a sophisticated, educated country that has the capacity to have a real national conversation with real national leadership, why do we have to wait and why do we have to wait for the bloody lights to go out? Well, here's what, what strikes me as interesting, because we often talk about Canada's manufacturing sector, even though that manufacturing sector is certainly concentrated in large part in, in one part of the country. Why don't we talk about Canada's oil sector? Why is it Alberta's oil sector? Why don't we think in terms, okay, this is Canada's industry? The only, the only once again, this is, this is an answer that, 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 that troubles my friends in Montreal, Toronto, and Ottawa. It's because... The sands, the fields, are not in Quebec or Ontario. If they were there, we wouldn't even be having this discussion. That's where the power is. I mean, we, we can go on and on and about how, you know, the, 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 you know, Preston Manning talked about how the West wanted in, and then Preston Manning declared years later that the, press, the, the, the West is in. Uh, you know, and I have a world of respect for Preston. I sometimes feel that that, that, that party was, was born on, on my radio show in Calgary back in the early 90s, okay? Uh, but but, but, but I, 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 once again, I've got to park my emotions and just look at the facts. The oil fields are in the west, they're not in the east, and that's the only reason we're having this ridiculous discussion. And it's not ridiculous that we're having it, but it's ridiculous that we're not having it in Montreal and Toronto and Ottawa. 
Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's key to the point, right? I mean, you, you talked about it right off the top, Charles, that the, the question that Rick Bell asked is the national question. The answer is one that fails the nation, but it's not something that, that the national news is going to report on. And, you know, all we have is this conversation. I guarantee you that this conversation is on our highlight show podcast that'll go out at about one o'clock this afternoon. And I really, man, everybody listening to this has got to share that conversation, not just in Alberta, but with all Canadians, because we have a situation here where we said, look, if industry and just boil it down. Don't make it about oil. If industry and Canadian industry that can benefit this country by boosting the GDP goes to Ottawa and asks permission to build a project and an independent board says, yeah, that's good, we should do it, then the prime minister should take that and run with it instead of say, well, maybe, but you know. Every single pension fund in this country and most of the pension money in this country because of how the population is laid out is going to elderly people living in Ontario and Quebec. Okay, that is too just a fact. Okay, that's not an Alberta story, that's a national story. Anyone from Montreal, Toronto, or Ottawa who cares can simply check the numbers on the TSX and ask anyone they know whether or not it matters that the Toronto stock market, which all pension funds are heavily invested in, whether it matters that the Toronto stock market is at a number right now that is the equivalent to where it was four years ago. That's called no growth. And if people don't understand that their pensions take a hit when energy takes a hit, then there's really nothing else left to talk about. I am an optimist. I will always be an optimist. I think if you put things in bread and butter terms to people coast to coast and treat everyone in Canada as an equal, everyone in Canada will get it. Charles, always appreciate the uh, the wisdom and the insight, and it's always fun chatting with you. Thanks so much for joining us here. Catch Charles Adler on uh, Sirius XM Satellite Radio is on uh, channel uh, Canada Talks. CharlesAdler.com as well. Yeah, he, I think he's just kind of primed the pump a little bit there. <laughs> Might dial him up tonight to see what more he's got. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, we, we appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk with him. He is us. Uh, join him uh, on his show periodically. and. Uh, but yeah, certainly one of the legends in uh, broadcast in this country. Listen, we'll take a break here. We want to hear from you, 974-8255. We're back with more right after this. You know you can call at 974-TALK. Text us to 770-770. Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Uh, welcome back, King Kate and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770. Uh, you know this this story. I, I think is really interesting in, in that there's there's something going on that most of us never see and never think about in in the world of um, well, certainly with top restaurants and these top chefs, uh, people who strive to get to to a certain point. What's involved in getting there and the pressure on them to stay there. The restaurant industry is is a fickle one. Obviously, restaurants come and go. People's tastes change. Uh, you know, they're always looking for the next new thing. And even just from an entrepreneurial point of view, I mean, to, to strike gold, that, that can be tough. And a lot of luck is involved. They just have the rest, right restaurant at the right place at the right time. And then we take it to the next level. We're talking about haute cuisine here. We're talking about where an investor invests in a chef to open a restaurant that's going to serve high-end food to a very high-end clientele. And the restaurant will usually be called so-and-so by so-and-so. So this restaurant by Gordon Ramsay, as an example. Yeah. And I mean, this, this, is, this is now in the upper echelon, the stratosphere of fine cuisine. And a very tragic story where the guy who was on the summit 
of this mountain. Chef Benoit Olivier, uh, Violier took his own life inexplicably. Right, someone who was at the top of his game, and I mean, it just underscores. Uh, I think you know the pressure these these people are un- under, how much they're they're under the microscope. Uh, Chef Paul Rogalski is uh, culinary director and owner of a Rouge Restaurant, a Bistro Rouge, a highly regarded uh, restaurants here in Calgary. Uh, Chef Paul, thanks for joining us here. And uh, I mean, this just must be you know sending all kinds of shockwaves to the community. Um, yeah, it's it's tragic uh, when the news hit um, that he had taken his life. I think a lot of people in uh, Calgary that I was talking to were all scratching their head going, you know, I wonder what happened, because right now you would think that uh, he would be on top of his game, um, being named number one in in the world by the list. Um, And I I, I do really appreciate what he must have been going through. Um, Our industry is just filled with so many parameters, and, and in every single day, uh, the game changes on you, you know, tenfold. Um, it's definitely an industry where you have to be very conditioned to react and deal with random incoming data. And, uh, you know, I, I look at the pressure that he must have been under having the number one seed because uh, everyone coming in now is looking to say, hey, well, what makes you number one? Because, uh, you know, food is, is very, very subjective. Uh, people have their own favorites. Uh, sometimes people don't understand the technical work or some of the detailing that goes into the, the plates. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's actually quite a tough thing to live up to expectations once you have achieved uh, some sort of a critical claim. For people in the industry, I mean, I don't know that the average citizen uh, would, would know of Benoit or know the name, but uh, for those in the industry, how well-known was he? How big a name was his? Well, you know, for me, I learned about him when the the new the list came out, and there's there's different sort of categories in which restaurants are uh, given acclaim on a world level. There's the Michelin star system, which is hugely powerful. Uh, not many three stars have been handed out, and it seems that to to be a three star restaurant. Um, what you offer and uh, regarding food and service has to be epic, um, flawless, outstanding. And uh, then there's the San Pellegrino list, which came out over a decade ago. And that, that list, uh, because the Michelin list wasn't really hitting the whole world. I mean, we don't have any restaurants in Canada that have been looked at by the Michelin yet. And I think there's only a very few restaurants in the United States that have. Uh, primarily a, a European uh, system. I think they've outreached to Asia as well, Japan and uh, parts of Southeast Asia. But the San Pellegrino list essentially said, hey, there's a lot of restaurants in this world. Um, we're going to create a, a top 50 list, and it's not necessarily based on opulence or uh, let's say things like having a servant in the washroom uh, the, the list is built on restaurants that have really led um, a vision and created something new in their marketplaces and, and their standout restaurants, whether they have tablecloths or not. Right. So that list had, uh, over the past few years, just a few restaurants in the top spot. Uh, a while ago, it was the Fat Duck, uh, which was... 
uh, I think number one for a couple of years. Is that Blumenthal's place? That is. That's, that's in Blumenthal's place. And then Bully was the, the top restaurant in the world for quite some time. And then Noma came along. And Noma, out of the past four years, was top spot for three. So that list, though, being in a, in a world, how can I rephrase that? That list is uh, a global list, and it didn't include many French chefs. And you know, there's some three-star Michelin restaurants that uh, were not included right. on it. So the French kind of thought, well, maybe they'll do their own list because uh, their criteria might be a little bit more, uh, I don't want to say the word stringent, but might be a little different than what the guidelines for the San Pellegrino list would be. And that's when Benoit uh, really came front row center, getting the number one spot on uh, the list. Right. You know, what's interesting to me about this, I mean, pardon this departure, but I remember watching a golf interview one time, and the, the reporter asked a professional golfer, um, Tiger Woods only won one major last year. Uh, you know, what do you think of the season he's going to have this year? And the response was, do you have any idea how insane that sounds, that he only won one major golf tournament? So I look at the Michelin stars. There are so few three-star, uh, three-Michelin star restaurants. But when they lose a star, when they get knocked down a peg to, to just two stars, that's, like, scandalous. Like, that's treated like it's it's almost uh, uh, like an amputation of something. Why is that? Why is it that, that chefs uh, respond so, I don't know, so... It's almost like tragically by losing a star. Yeah. Well, generally speaking, chefs are a passionate breed. Um, we are very artistic, and I, I think what we all have in common is just this huge desire to please people and to make people happy. And uh, if you put it out, you know, on on a plate, and you have your heart on your sleeve uh, all day, every day and you're doing your best, and then someone comes along, and they, they there's so many things that could happen in a kitchen, but if someone comes along and says, well, this isn't as good as I thought it would be, uh, you know, there's the, the pride issue. Right. Uh, because I, I know the chefs, or all chefs, are, are very cognizant that they want to make sure, you know, the experience is outstanding for everybody. So there's that sort of feeling that, okay, you've done your best, and it wasn't good enough. And then there's the business side of it as well. And uh, a loss in a Michelin star could easily lead to loss in revenue as well. And it just seems like it just, you know, can be just that one review, you know, one, one critic who's in a foul mood or maybe even looking to knock someone down a peg. Right. I mean, so much power seems to be in their hands and, and that, that can make or break some of these chefs. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I did read a review that was posted from the New York Times about uh, a restaurant in New York called Per Se. And when I read that, I thought, as I was reading the article, I thought, oh, geez, you know, it, it seems like it could have been a, an off day uh, for the kitchen, or perhaps it wasn't. But the, the impact that I'm sure it had on that restaurant, um, the fact that we're reading about it up here in Canada, is uh, going to be quadrupled in its own market, and then, of course, in the United States, uh, would only have damaging effects. Yeah, right. No kidding. Uh, Chef Paul Rogowski, we'll just ask you to uh, hold the line for a sec, take a quick break, and continue this conversation on the other side. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is News Talk 770. Hey, welcome back. Kincaid and Breckenridge Show. 
Uh, we're talking to Chef Paul Rogalski, uh, culinary director and owner of Rouge Restaurant and uh, Bistro Rouge, about the tragic uh, suicide, apparent suicide, of one of the top chefs in the world, Chef Benoit Villiers. Um, you know, Chef Paul, I, I think about when Hunter S. Thompson ended his life, he, he kind of got to this point where he thought, he's done, you know, he's done everything he can. Uh, he's at the top, uh, and you know he's only going to get older from here. Is, is it possible that this chef, with his uh, all his accolades and his Michelin stars, would think to himself, "It's only down from here"? Oh, easily. That that could totally be it. And I, I think maybe also the realization of how much energy it would take to to stay in that spot. Um, there's only so many hours in a day, and if you've already given it 100 percent. Uh, or 110 or 120 percent. Uh, maybe the well was dry for him. Uh, I, I imagine uh, with all, all the things that he was dealing with and along with that sort of fame comes uh, press opportunities and public appearances. And uh, the more you do that, obviously, you know, the less time you're spending looking at your restaurant, sadly. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know for certain, but I wouldn't be surprised if it all became just very, very too much. Uh, too much to handle and, and trying to uh, make sure that, uh, let me rephrase that, for him trying to visualize what the next period of time would be like could have been quite daunting. Well, and you just, you know, imagine at any level, right, just, you know, the risk an entrepreneur takes in opening a restaurant and what a gamble that is and, and how many don't make it. Uh, but then, you know, the pressure that's on a chef that you're the one responsible for the food and that's how people are going to judge that restaurant and, and, you know, the need to, to be creative and, and be different and constantly be on your game and, and never have an off day and never make a misstep and just all the luck that needs to go into people, you know, discovering you in the first place and, and spreading it by word of mouth. So, how much of this falls on a on the head chef? What's the head chef's role in a restaurant? Um, the head chef is responsible for so many things now, um, especially if you look back in time compared to what he used to be responsible for. I, I think a, a chef now has to be very savvy when it comes to doing PR. I think he has to, or she has to, uh, be very clever at keeping ahead of the trend and, and making sure that they are leading a team, inspiring a team, and having that team gel to work towards a common vision. And uh, then there's the the other thing that the chef's responsible for. I mean, it's, it's not just the reputation of the restaurant. So how they perform in the public eye has an impact overall on how people will perceive that their business would be. Uh, so that they're being judged as people. And then they're being judged as leaders. And with that being said, um, they're also responsible for every plate that's being served. So the, the life of a chef in a kitchen is just crazy. Uh, there's, there's so many things that happen in a, a single day. Um, the fact that you're dealing with purchasing and ever-changing uh, food supplies, food prices, so there's an economy that's built in, which you'll you'll build your business model on a certain um, number. Let's say your food cost is going to be 35%, and and everything is hinged to those forecasts. And then uh, the number changes because the cost of food has gone up, or yeah. the supply has diminished, and it's 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 relentless. 
um, the, the daily routine of just keeping on top of the food and making sure that food goes out to the plate, especially when you're dealing with um, products that change. So if, for example... Like beef, right? Yeah, there, there's one. And then uh, produce. Uh, we live in a produce-challenged growing environment. Don't say cauliflower. Just do not say cauliflower. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of carrots. Okay. But, but, you know, if the carrots that you received from the farm last week um, were different than they are this week, well, the, the customer doesn't know that, and the customer doesn't care. But it's up to the chef to make sure that he can take that raw ingredient and uh, make sure it's as close to being the same when you have it on the plate and how it tastes. And then there's the element of teaching that to young people and, and to uh, new cooks and to your front-end staff to, to know what's going on. Yep. So sure. it's yeah, sorry, go on. Very much a time management situation, if you can imagine. Yeah, no kidding. And then on top of that, you, you get reviews. I mean, we, we started this conversation talking about like that upper echelon of the major leagues, the Michelin stars, the Pellegrino list. But I mean, I think at the bottom of that is Yelp, right? And, and you're a chef who has been, uh, you've been on the top of lists. Like your, your restaurant is one of, if not the finest in the city. Uh, you, you know, it's known around the country. Um, but then you're, I mean, just in Googling a little bit this morning, I see it, it gets like a four and a half star rating on one of these silly restaurant sites. And I sort of, it's a personal question, I know, but w what does that do to you? Does that have an effect on you or can, can you let that roll off your back? Well, I, I can say honestly that, um, we, we do read every single review. Uh, we, we believe that we can learn from them. So if we see a pattern, uh, we'll be able to deal with it and make ourselves better. But sometimes these reviews are out to lunch. There's the off day for everyone. Right. You know, not everybody's perfect 100% of the time. Some people are tired. Some people might have a migraine. I mean, there's, there's a, a different... With humans go problems with humans, just like in any industry. And uh, mistakes do happen. And I think for the most part... Uh, your success is in how you deal with those mistakes. Right. But I mean, Roger has bad shows all the time, right? And it's it's okay. We yeah. you know we still love him. Yeah, we we get through it. And, and Rob, thank God, Rob is just uh, batting a thousand still <laughs> to prop us up. Hey, uh, Chef Paul, really thanks for your time and your candor this morning. My pleasure. All right, take care, sir. That was great. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem at all. All right, Chef Paul Rogowski, uh from Rouge. Right, and look, I mean, you know, I. I don't know. Do chefs know what they're getting into? Right. There are a lot of people who work stressful jobs, work long hours and and feel all kinds of pressures. And you can think of all, you know, a lot of different professions. It's just I don't know that people really understand everything that's uh, that goes goes into this particular job and how much is on the line for them every single night. Have you ever worked in a kitchen ever before? Like in any capacity, like a dishwasher yeah, or something. Yeah, well, not in a well in a fast food, you know, sure, high okay. school job, sure. Yeah. I, you know, I worked in a a couple of different places, and like you can see the the different characteristics in the different kitchen staff, and you know who's going one way and who's going another. I mean, it's one thing to cook good food because you like to cook good food for people, but then there's the OCD that is really present in I would guess a lot of of top chefs. Where it's sort of like, you know, every little micro green has its right place where it has to be. And, and like, there's these chefs who just, they clearly put so much of their ego into every single dish that goes out there that for them, the bar is set at perfection, if not just below it. Yeah, but they're not making every single meal for everybody. It's not like, you know, let's say you're going to surprise your wife. You're going to pay this chef to come to your house and he's going to spend all day crafting this perfect meal for you and your wife. 
doesn't work that way in a restaurant. Just because it's Chef So-and-So's restaurant, does that mean when you come in and sit down and order that he's back there in the kitchen, just him, and he's working only on your meal? Right? I mean, so how does it work? Do they just they come up with the dishes? They they train the, the staff to help make these other aspects? Because obviously they're still in the kitchen working. And a lot of times they're the last eyes on it, right? They'll work the pass. Right. So they'll make sure that the whole thing comes together and then the plate gets to the pass and then they look down at it and they go, this is my creation. I will serve this food. And, and you know, to just constantly be going through that and trying to hit that target every single time. I can't imagine how certain people uh, absorb that kind of pressure. We'll take a break right here. Come back, wrap up this hour. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. 